You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished, The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Now hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 26, 17-29. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, You will see a certain man. Tell him. The teacher says, My time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one, Lord? He replied, One of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me, for the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, You have said it. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Uh, Hello to everyone at home. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Um, We are nearing the end of the book of Matthew, and time will slow down a little bit as we get closer and closer here to the death of Jesus. Um, No one likes talking about death for pretty obvious reasons, Uh, yet, have you noticed, if you're a Christian and you've been coming here any length of time at least, have you noticed the call of the Christian life uh, to remember one man's death? Um, Do you know enough about Christianity to know that the center of The theology, the center of the belief system is around one man's death. It's very bizarre if you're willing to step back and and consider it. Um, Christianity isn't the only religion in the world, if you're not aware. Um, And Jesus isn't the only founder of a religion who's died. As best I know, everybody who's founded a religion has died. Um, But the death of Christ is, is starkly different. For one, which I've already kind of alluded to, Christians are called to remember his death. It's a central part of our life and our belief system. Uh, and that's pretty, that's pretty unique. Uh, Buddha, for instance, <laughs> I was laughing, I studied philosophy in school and everybody in philosophy, you know, toyed with Buddhism for a while or like fussy Christians got tired of their youth group and said, like, I'm going to go try Buddhism. And you go read about Buddha and he died at 80 in serene peace, surrounded by his devotees, at the height of his career, at the height of his respect. Uh, Confucius, another kind of Eastern thinker, uh, died in his hometown 
He had been sent away for a while, but towards the end of his life, he's welcomed back with honor and respect and dies as a hero. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, died in his 60s in the arms of his loving wife. These men died in honor. Uh, these founders of other religions are remembered for their teachings and the movements they started, and their deaths are kind of a pleasant footnote. And then you get to the case of Jesus of Nazareth, who died as a criminal, who died in the most shameful way the world knew how to execute someone. Uh, he dies abandoned and betrayed by his friends, and it would seem abandoned by the God he claimed to serve. We're called to remember his death. Isn't that, isn't that just a little bit strange? I, I'm going to be honest with you guys for a second, and all the hundreds of strangers online at home right now. There's times where I look at the death of Buddha, and I say, it sure seems like it worked for that dude. To die in peace, to die respected and celebrated, Times where I think that I would take that. Not suffocating naked on a cross, hearing insults and accusations with my last breaths. Why this kind of death that Jesus would endure? And why is this death so central to Christianity? Why are Christians... You're, some of you wear a cross on your neck. You know, that's basically the equivalent of wearing an electric chair around your neck. Why is it that a death is so central to our faith? I'm going to start answering that question by backing up just a little bit in Matthew 26. There's actually three dinner scenes in Matthew 26. And in the first one, um, well, we're, we're going to talk about an unexpected dinner guest at the second dinner scene. Um, the, the first one sets, sets the tone for pretty much the rest of Jesus's life at this point. Last week, Jesus finished his sermon on the end of the world. And while he's finished preaching, look at what the religious leaders are up to. In verses three through four, we read, at that same time, so that's while Jesus is finishing his teaching on the end of the world, his teaching on judgment, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. The plot to kill Jesus or the, decide, the decision to move towards killing Jesus started way back in, in Matthew chapter 12. And when you hear Caiaphas, the high priest, meeting in his house. Don't think of community group. Y'all remember when we used to do that? When you go in people's living rooms and talk for a while and we split up to guys and girls and whatever. Caiaphas lived in a palace. So while Jesus is out there preaching about the end of the world and judgment day, the religious elites are in a palace secretly meeting to figure out how they can murder this guy. What's Jesus up to after? Verses six through seven. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. So you have the powerful and the elite in a palace plotting a murder. And then you have Jesus in the house of a leper he had healed. You, can you put that, that verse back up there? It's not really all that important. It just tickles me. Isn't it uh, one back, back one more? The house of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. Does anybody know what the cure for leprosy is? Back then, at least, did he go and get his vaccine at Floyd County Memorial Hospital, Baptist Health East? Jesus, thank you. Why did he formally have leprosy? Because Jesus touched somebody that you're not supposed to touch. Jesus went near to somebody 
that you're not supposed to go near to. And he didn't just heal him, he befriends him, and now he's having dinner at his house. What a stark contrast just subtly set before us in these first few verses of 26. The powerful and the elite meeting in a palace, secretly, subtly, subversively plotting a murder. And Jesus is spending time with an outcast friend of his that he had healed. And then a woman comes in, and she... I know you guys know part of the story. Try to create a movie script in your mind imagining this. It's a wonder that he's around Simon at all and that this man used to have leprosy. And then this woman just shows up at dinner. What would you do if a strange woman just showed up? And by strange, I just mean a stranger. You have a dinner, you're having dinner with your community group and some lady comes in and starts pouring stuff over your community group leader's head. What's interesting to me is that a woman began the Christmas story. Y'all remember that? Mary, the mother of Jesus. And now a woman begins the passion story. There's a pivotal moment as soon as this woman shows up that we are on a beeline towards Calvary at this point. A woman begins the Christmas story. A woman begins the passion story. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, women begin the last chapter of God's story, the great mission of God. Unlike all the other founders of other religions, women played a critical role in every step of Jesus's life and ministry, and they're remembered. And the disciples were not pleased with this woman here. She wasn't an obvious hero. Look at what they say. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. That means angry. They were wound up, indignant. They were fussy. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. There's a little bit of guesswork involved, but it's probably, uh, that, that jar of perfume is probably worth a year's salary. So the, the, average, the average household income in the immediate area around our neighborhood, at least it was a couple years ago, is right at $32,000 a year. So let's just pretend this is a $32,000 bottle of perfume. And stranger lady comes in and drops 30 grand on your group leader's head. Isn't there, again, don't raise your hand because you know how this story ends, but isn't there a part of you that agrees with the disciples here? Doesn't it sound so spiritual and holy? What about all the poor here? We're gonna dump all of this money on this guy's head? Listen to what Jesus says. Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She's poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. As it turns out, Jesus was right in saying that. What's happening here? And again, remember, this is coming on the heels of the elite meeting in that secret palace to plot a murder. And now here at this dinner scene, we have a living commentary of the greatest commandments. Love the Lord with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. This story appears in Mark's gospel too and Jesus gives us a little insight into what's going on in her heart. He says of her in Mark's gospel, she has done what she could. She's done what she could. This was likely her most prized possession, certainly her most expensive possession. This was the clearest expression of her devotion to Jesus. She literally pours out her heart over him. She took the best of what she had and poured it out in devotion to God. This is what it looks like to love the Lord your God. This is what it looks like 
to love him with all of your heart. And Jesus responds to her in love the way he would want her to respond to him. He receives her gift. He thanks her, blesses her for her sacrifice, honors her for it. She makes an economic sacrifice. Clearly, it was very expensive. She makes a social sacrifice, barging in uninvited to a dinner party. Can you imagine doing that? She makes a cultural sacrifice. This is a woman barging into a room of men. But it was what she had, and she gave it to Jesus. And he welcomes her, he receives her. She loved the Lord, and he loved her the way he wants to be loved himself. You want to know what the greatest commandment looks like? Look at this section. First dinner scene, the powerful plotting a murder. The second dinner scene, a living commentary on the greatest commandment. But then we get to this in-between time, before a third dinner scene and after the second. Judas, we don't precisely know why, but Judas has had enough. There's room to speculate what's going on with Judas. Uh, perhaps he could no longer stand Jesus' downward mobility. Dinner at a leper's house? welcoming in strange women? I thought we were going to overthrow Rome. Maybe Jesus or Judas could, could no longer handle Judas's ministry model. Jeez, Judas could no longer handle Jesus's ministry model. Holding hands with the marginalized instead of shaking fists at the seat of power, which one sounds better to you? Maybe Judas was just disgusted watching Jesus prioritize this desperate woman at the expense of a city filled with the poor. I don't know, I don't know what it is. Something, something breaks in Judas at this moment and he decides he's had enough. And so he leaves the second dinner scene to go meet with the elite and says, in essence, how much will you guys give me to betray Jesus? Which then leads to our third dinner scene. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Can you, can you see grace and invitation here? If you were Jesus and you knew who was going to betray you, what would you have done there? He's clearly speaking to Jesus, we, or to Judas. We know that now. And it's, it's as if he's saying to Judas, there's still time. You can still come to me. Right after this, and I think pretty clearly feeling the sting of conviction, or at least the fear of what will come of this, Judas turns to Jesus and asks, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Do you see the covering Jesus is providing Judas here? In, in, essence, in essence, Jesus responds to Judas's question, that's what you said. Those are your words, not mine. What would the disciples have done if he had named Judas the betrayer? What grace he shows his betrayer and the slim invitation there that there's still time. And we also know from reading the passage that all of the disciples started asking, am I the one? 
I think he's speaking to the disciples in general at the same time, inviting them to search their hearts. In his simple one of you, Jesus is telling Judas that he knows and he's inviting him to repent. And in his simple one of you, Jesus is warning the disciples of their self-deception, their self-confidence. One of you, search your hearts. And what a contrast to the woman from the previous dinner who came to Jesus vulnerable with all she had. One of the things these dinner scenes are showing us is that at the table of Christ, there is room for the betrayer. There is room for the self-deceived and there is room for the devoted. And in this last supper of Jesus's life, he shows us the way forward, whether we are the betrayer, the self-deceived, and even the devoted. So in verse 26, it says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. This is the secret of the Christian life here. The way we enter and the way we move forward, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. He takes something ordinary and declares it to be sacred. He broke it and he gave it. Christianity is initiated by Jesus. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. The first moment of faith for all of us, whether you're betrayer, whether you're devoted, whether you're self-deceived, the first movement of Christianity is always grace. Take is a word of grace. Take this. I have something. I'm giving it to you. Take is a word of grace. And this grace is offered even to the betrayers and the self-deceived and the deniers. If you know how the story goes, you can guess how the next few sermons are going to go for the disciples. They don't do a great job. And yet Jesus still gives them this gift of grace. They're at this table by grace. And at this table, he extends another gracious invitation. Take this. And then in his next word is our response. Take and eat. Eat is a an act of faith, receive grace and obey. Take and eat, grace and then faith. That is the rhythm of the Christian life. God initiates with grace and we respond with faith. Take and eat, for this is my body. This is my body, said the Lord. What is he saying? Is this, so here's the bread that we're gonna break in a minute to remember all of this. Is this Jesus? <laughs> this is a little bit confusing. Some branches of Christianity would say, no, it's actually, it's body, it's flesh. What does he mean? I would say somewhat obviously, it's not, it's not literally his body. How do I know? It's so bready. <laughs> like I can smell it and I can taste it and touch it. But is it, is it just bread? What is he saying? He's saying, I don't know if it's helpful. I like the way this feels right now. Um, he's saying, when you see this bread, see me. And when you receive this bread, receive me. What happens when you take and eat this bread is what happens when you believe and receive and follow me. So listen, this is the great power of Christian ritual. 
What is ritual? That's a word that has strange baggage. Ritual is a way that we enter into and experience something that is mysterious, something that doesn't totally make full sense to us, that we don't have the capacities to understand it fully. And so we have rituals that help us embody and experience these mysteries. So listen, Jesus, and we see this here in the passage, is the fulfillment of the Passover way back in Exodus. He is the sacrificial lamb whose blood keeps us safe from the judgment of God. If we are covered in the body of Christ and in the shed blood of Christ, we are, uh, the judgment of God passes over us. He covers the sin of humanity. He takes our place and by faith, he dwells in our hearts. Have you heard that faith or that, that phrase before? By faith, he dwells in your hearts. Believe and Jesus will dwell in your heart. Or Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we would have power to know Christ dwells in our heart. What does that mean? It's a cute phrase or image, but I don't remember like a construction truck moving up and Jesus saying, hey, we're gonna do some heart renovations now. Or what does that mean that the spirit of God moves inside of your heart? Do you see what I mean? It's a bit of a mystery. We can explain it to a degree, but what does that actually mean? And what does that actually look like? How do we comprehend such a mystery? Jesus says, think about bread. It looks ordinary, but it's been set apart. Just like I look ordinary in my day, but I have been set apart. Bread cannot do what it must do unless it is broken unless it is chewed, unless it is digested, and then it becomes you. It sustains you. It fuels you. Upon receiving the bread, and by receiving, I mean eating, swallowing, chewing, you can't point to a part of you that's bread and a part of you that's not bread. Here's where the eaten bread is. Here's you can't trace out, well, here's where all the enzymes from that bread are. And you got some bread in your fingertip and some over here on your knee and some still in, it, it permeates you. And there becomes no line of distinction between where is your breadiness and where is your you-ness. The bread and your body become one. It's all encompassing because it becomes you. This is the life of faith. Take and eat, receive Christ, and he becomes you. There will be no distinction between where Jesus begins and where you end. This is how we enter into the mystery of the Christian faith through sacred rituals like this. We embody the gospel through the practice of the Lord's Supper. What does it mean that he died on the cross for our sins? What does it mean that we are united with Christ? What does it mean that he dwells in our hearts? It means we enter in through the body of Christ given for us. He enters us as we receive him by faith and then his presence permeates our soul and we get to learn what this means week by week as we participate in this mysterious ritual. And then verse 27, he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Drinking the cup reminds us of how we become safe with God and how we know we remain safe with God. 
Our sins are forgiven and we are united with him because the body of Christ was given for us and the blood of Christ was shed for us. And now our covenant-keeping God holds us tightly because we cannot unshed the blood of Jesus. If you want to know, am I still safe with God? Am I still loved by him? Has Christ still been crucified? Has his body still been broken and has his blood still been shed? And then the answer for you is yes. In the, in the cup, time does funny things. In, in some ways, it invites us to look backwards, like the Jews, to, to look back to Passover and to see his blood saves us from our sin, like the blood of the Passover lamb saved the people of God. Communion invites us to look back to the cross and remember what guarantees our safety with God. And in the mystery of this present moment, though, the Lord's Supper invites us to experience our supernatural union with Christ. He's here in this meal in our very bodies. So yes, the Lord's Supper invites us to look back, but it also profoundly grounds us in the present. And then there's this last word from Jesus here, his promise that he will not drink wine again until the day he drinks it with us in his Father's kingdom. So there's this movement. We, we look to the past to remember that he has forgiven us through his body broken and his blood shed. We remember presently now that he is here with us. And this stirs in us a longing to enter into that future kingdom where we'll drink wine with Jesus. Does that not sound a little bit appealing? What will he open? What will we be drinking? You know he's not going to open wine if there isn't food. You know, one of the great pictures of the end of the world for Christians is called the wedding feast of the Lamb. You think God knows how to throw a party? As we leave the table, our souls are filled with longing for that day. Communion invites us to long for the future when we will drink again with Christ. Simply put, take and eat. Grace and faith. God initiates, we respond. Maybe it's clear to you now why Christians remember death why death is such a central part of our faith. The death of Christ frees us from Satan, from sin, and from death. The death of Christ seals our souls in communion with God. And unlike all of those other religious leaders, Jesus didn't stay dead. Christ is remembered for his death. Maybe, maybe primarily, maybe first and foremost, because his death led to his resurrection. And the resurrection of Christ is what has reconciled us to God. Yes, Jesus' teachings are remembered, but the scriptures themselves say his teachings are basically worthless if he didn't rise from the dead. The reason Jesus is remembered, the reason that here in southern Indiana, in the middle of February, we're worshiping a Middle Eastern carpenter is because he rose from the dead. His teachings are remembered. His ministry is remembered because the grave could not hold him. So the questions for us to wrestle with, in light of this, I think, is, who in this story do you identify with? Which one of these dinner scenes can you relate to? Will you remain self-deceived like Judas? What does that look like? I think that means when we're so confident that we know what's best. 
that our strategy works best, that we have the best ideas. Maybe we deny Christ through pretense and self-assurance like some of the other disciples did, puffed up with confidence, thinking that they were in the inner circle and they could do no wrong. I think the clear invitation for how we are to respond is to be like this woman, taking what we have and pouring it out for Christ's sake. Will we take and eat? Will we love the Lord our God with what we have right where we are? If, I'm so convinced of this. If we try to deny who we are, that we are betrayers, that we are people filled with need, that we are people daily battling disappointments and frustrations, that we are people who often live like we don't love the Lord. If we deny who we are, we will inevitably deny Christ. But there is sweet freedom afforded to those who know themselves, who know the depths of their need, who know the social and cultural barriers raised against us like that woman. When you know your need, you will be eager to receive, and you'll find the sweet freedom of Christ's body given for you and his blood shed for you. You will take the gift of grace. You will follow by faith, and I promise you, you will learn to be free. And so this is why we ground ourselves in the reality of Christ's death week after week. It has the power to change us, to transform us, to reconcile us with God and to change his world. And so we remember the night he was betrayed, that Jesus took a loaf of bread he blessed it, gave God thanks for it, and he broke it. He said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. I want you to see the wonder of what God has done with something ordinary, especially if you are at home. I'm encouraged by everyone who's coming back and as we're slowly reopening and um, there's still so many folks who are at home and trying to figure out what does the Lord's Supper look like at home. I just, I want you guys to see the wonder, the sacredness that God has instilled in ordinary things. He took an ordinary looking man. The prophets would say there was nothing handsome or beautiful about Jesus that would draw us to him. He was an ordinary looking man. And the greatest mystery of the Christian faith would be explained and embodied and experienced through ordinary everyday things. Bread they ate every day, wine they drank every day. If you're at home, find something ordinary. Find something that you eat or you drink every day that you can receive now as evidence of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Let that be for you a sacred meal filling you with the wonder of Christ united with you. And for us, let's try to put ourselves there now as we participate in this ritual. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.